This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Who was Woodrow Wilson? He's well known for having had the project of creating a world that would be safe for democracy. He helped to create the League of Nations, the forerunner of the United Nations. And yet when push came to shove, he decided to discourage the Senate in the United States from signing the treaty in support of the League of Nations. And of course that ultimately sealed its doom. What was Wilson's psychology in doing this? It turns out there's a book that was written about that question and about Wilson's psychology in general by an ambassador, William Bullitt, and the founder of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. We're going to explore that book today and its arguments about Wilson's psychology of holding and wielding power. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Patrick Vey, a senior research fellow at the French National Research Center, the CNRS, in the University of Paris-Anne, better known as the Sorbonne, and a visiting professor of law at Yale Law School. He recently published The Madman in the White House, Sigmund Freud, Ambassador Bullitt, and the Lost Psychobiography of Woodrow Wilson, which was published by Harvard University Press in 2023. He's also recently published in French, De la laïcité en France by Grasset in 2021, and The Sovereign Citizen, Denaturalization, and the Origins of the American Republic, which was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2013. In addition to his scholarly activities, uh, in 2006, Patrick Vey founded the NGO Libraries Without Borders, a.k.a. Bibliothèque Sans Frontières, uh, of which he remains chairman. Thanks for joining us today, Patrick Vey. Thank you, John, for inviting me. Great to have you with us. Looking forward to talking about this very interesting book. Your new book concerns a long-lost book manuscript by U.S. diplomat William Bullitt, who was a close confidant of Woodrow Wilson's, uh, and also authored by the founder of psychoanalysis, as as I've already mentioned, Sigmund, Sigmund Freud. So can you tell us about the history of the book and how you came to write about it? So I will tell you about how I found this manuscript, because in fact, I, I'm teaching at Yale Law School uh, since 2008, and in the summer of 2014, I was in New York, entered a used bookshop, and found the, the book Bullitt and Freud as published in 1966, The Psychological Portrait of Woodrow Wilson. I had read it when I was a student in France. I liked it because it's, it was an attempt by Freud to decipher a leader, something we do every day. We are speaking every day about the psychology of 
of different leaders. And he was, he has tried on Wilson something very uh, systematically and scientifically, uh, something we do randomly uh, as citizens every day. And I bought the book for $6 and I opened it. Oh, I remember there is this Colonel House who was the main advisor of Wilson. And I was in House papers at Yale because he had become friend with Clemenceau, the French premier of the First World War. And I was editing an article Clemenceau wrote from the US when he was a correspondent for a very important French newspapers. And said, maybe there is a correspondent with this ambassador you just mentioned, Bullitt, between Bullitt and House. I tap Bullitt names on the Yale search. Oh, all the Bullitt papers are there. Immediately, I found the boxes related to the manuscript whispering. I was very impressed. There was some handwritten uh, manuscript by Freud, Gothic German, etc. But that was not the discovery I made a few weeks later, which was the original manuscript. A manuscript that is signed at the end of each chapters by the two authors. And when I compare the original manuscript and the printed published manuscript in 1966, it was not the same. It has, the, the, the original manuscript has been cut 300 times. Major, uh, major analysis made by the two authors has been cut, has disappeared. And I say, what should I do? I can announce published that I have found an original manuscript of Freud and I will have five minutes of publicity or I can investigate. I can try to understand how they wrote this book and why it was censored by the co-author, why it was uh, postponed for more than 30 years, etc. So I had first to understand the Treaty of Versailles because the book is focused on how Wilson uh, on, on, on his uh, uh, on the role he played in designing the treaty, and as you just say, destroying it uh, uh, at the end of the process. And then I discovered that I had not understood major things about the treaty. I had not understood that as much as, as you say, you have the League of Nations, which preceded the UN. You had a NATO before NATO a treaty that was called the Treaty of Guarantee that was signed by the United States President, Woodrow Wilson, the British Premier, Lloyd George, with Clemenceau, that would uh, permit and, and in fact obli oblige the United States and the UK uh, to support military France in case of German aggression. And the other thing I didn't understand, and you told it immediately, it is that it is Wilson who at the end ordered the Democratic senator to vote against the treaty, only for one reason, which was that there was a reservation coming from the Republican saying in case of declaration of war, the president of the United States has to respect the constitution and get approval of Congress. For that reason, he ordered the Democratic senator to vote against the treaty. So as Freud said, uh, uh, when, like Wilson, a man achieved almost the exact opposite of that which has wished to accomplish. When a presumption to free the world from evil 
ends only in a new proof of the danger of a fanatic to the Commonwealth, and that was written in 32, just before Hitler was coming to power. So when a man who declares he wants to bring peace to the world provoke a situation that brings a new world war to the world, it's time to investigate. That was the purpose of their book. Well, it's a fascinating story. Um, can you tell us more about you know, what exactly, why did it take so long for the book to actually get published? I mean, this had to do with people's other ambitions and, and actions in the political world, I guess, Bullet in particular. But tell us about that story. So they they worked, first of all, uh, Bullet went to see Freud as a patient at the end of 26. Then he published, a, he wrote a play on Wilson that was never produced, but was very smart, in fact. And then he came back to Freud and said, I offer you to write a chapter on a book I write in diplomacy. And Freud said, I'm not very comfortable with that proposal, but I'm excited of working with you. If you find enough material, we can do a book. And Bullitt brought back a lot of material in the fall of 1930, and they the book was ready to be published in the spring of 1932. But it was postponed mainly because 32 was the presidential election year for Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, Bullitt has been working for Wilson, a Democrat. A Democrat was back to power. He needed diplomats in the State Department. Bullitt when he was working for Wilson, starting in 1917, was sent to a secret mission to visit Lenin in February 1919. And he got a proposal of Lenin to have a truce uh, in, the civil, in the Russian Civil War. Wilson didn't want to read, but he was a kind of hero in Soviet Union. So Roosevelt asked him to negotiate with him the recognition by the United States of Soviet Union, and he's chosen by Roosevelt to be the first ambassador to Soviet Union, 1930. That, of course, Freud agrees, we have to postpone the publication, you have a very important diplomatic mission. And in fact, mission to Moscow was very important in the, for Bullitt because he discovered the horror of Stalinism. Uh, and he was a very radical liberal when he was younger, and he became totally afraid of the power of communism, uh, as, he, as he described as a religion, uh, promising, you know, if you, if you give power to the communists, you'll have a paradise. In fact, it was a kind of religion. And then he was ambassador in Paris. It was an extremely important position. He was like the representative of Roosevelt for the whole Europe. He, he tried to prevent the war by organizing big uh, aircraft command for the French and the British army in the US. Uh, he, had, he was a visionary. For example, when the war started in 1939, he wrote to the uh, US envoy in Berlin, Hitler has already lost the war. He might crush the French and the British, but then he will be eaten like a concert by the Bolsheviks up to Berlin. And then the, the question will be, are you going, are we going to win or, or them? 
And it was because he was obsessed by his prevision was quite uh, prophetic in some way. And so he was totally involved in the Cold War when it started in 1945. And he, as he has analyzed uh, uh, communism as a religion, he felt that only another religion was able to beat the communists on, and he thought other only Christianity. So he connected with the Pope. He visited the Pope by by twelve, two or three times. He 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 became a kind of uh, freelance Secretary of State when he has been sidelined by Roosevelt, and then become has become a Republican. He was the Kissinger, Nixon's Kissinger before Kissinger, because he has met with uh, Nixon uh, at the time of Algeria's uh, uh, affair and the uh, investigation uh, committee. And uh, so until he felt he was too old to become a, a secretary of state of a Republican who, who was never elected, like Nixon, of course, failed in 1960, he postponed the publication of the book. Also, Mrs. Wilson died only in 1962, and he was not totally at ease of publishing the book while she was still alive. And he started thinking about publishing it in 1963, and uh, finally it's published in 66. So, uh, and it took him time to edit, to cut, etc. And the, and the issue is, what did he cut? Because uh, and why? And 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 that is uh, that's another question. Well, it's a great story. Um, and obviously the fact that Sigmund Freud is involved, I mean, obviously Bullitt is a, an interesting figure, but, you know, Sigmund Freud is obviously more famous. Um, and I guess I'm curious, you know, what's the nature of the analysis? I mean, that, that they offer, not your analysis, but their, the, what they offer, you know, it's widely thought or believed or known that uh, Wilson had a stroke in 1919 and was generally thought, you know, not really to be capable of carrying out the duties of president and that, you know, his wife supposedly was doing a lot of this stuff. And so I'm curious, you know, what do you think is most compelling in their understanding? I mean, this the main event in many ways in the book is this sort of scuttling of the uh, League of Nations endeavor by, you know, keeping the United States out of it. And, you know, what was that all about? How could he have sort of been such an important force in creating the League of Nations and then sort of trying to get the United States not to join it? So that's a very important question. And in fact, the answers occur before the stroke, where after the stroke, he was still having a lot of, he was, she, she was like a barrier to, to, to meetings for him because he was feeble, etc. But he's, he has been tested because two senators went to visit him and they say, oh, it's okay, he's fine, his brain is still functioning. He's still, he's still, but so everything that is described in the book uh, about his neurosis, had an impact before the stroke. Let me explain. So neurosis means that he was doing things. He, he felt it. He said, I'm doing things. I, I'm afraid of repeating things I've already done in the past. Uh, that is something I don't control. 
So that's classical neurosis when you feel that a kind of other in you is doing things that you cannot resist, doing things that feel foreign to yourself. And in fact, I told you that Bullitt, when he came back to start gathering, collecting data about the project and in testimonies, etc., had I mean he has incredible results. First of all, um, he was able to interview intimate collaborators of Wilson. And Wilson has a very particular personality in the way that he was talking to intimate collaborators the way you talk to a psychoanalyst. So he was speaking about his personal feelings, his angst, his excitement, uh, 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 the way you can imagine in a session you would talk to your psychoanalyst. And so many of these collaborators has had either written their diary uh, uh, or uh, with of their relation with Wilson or was able to give testimony. And Bullitt interviewed his doctor, who was at the end of his life, his only friend, his official biographer, his secretary, his chief of staff, and got access to the 2,000-page diary of Colonel House. House was dictating to his secretary every day what has happened with, with, in his relation to Wilson and others uh, every day. So, First of all, in the house diary, what did he discover? That Wilson, while being president of the United States, until half of the, the half of the second term, was paralyzed many days because he couldn't sleep because of Princeton nightmare. He had nightmare about what happened to him in Princeton. Can we imagine? Where he was president. When he was president, he has been a student. President of Princeton, sorry. President of Princeton. President of Princeton University. Right. So what has happened to him in Princeton? Two things that are very important. Uh, he need, uh, Wilson needed a best friend. Has, as uh, Wilson biographer told Bullitt, Wilson had to have a woman at home, his wife, his two wife, and one much loved friend and then could be hard as steel to any man outside that circle. He needed a best friend and he had in the faculty a best friend, a professor of philosophy. He would talk to him every day. They would walk, they would travel together in vacation with the two couples, etc. And one day in a faculty meeting, his colleague disagreed with him and speak. He has told him, I am not agreeing with you in that project. And Wilson said, it's okay, no problem, of course. Our friendship will not be damaged by that. But then when the Hibbon talked, it was an earthquake in Wilson's mind. He could not sleep. He, he had to go, he had a break. He, he, had, he, he had to go to vacation. He had to, and he could not, he, he would write to a friend, I cannot recover from that moment. It was, was completely, a, a trauma that could not be explained only by a classical friendship, I would say. And then there was another story which resembled. And, uh, so that's exactly what happened between, in his friendship with House. House was the most extraordinary friend. The, the, the White House butler 
who has been there for like 10 presidents. So he has never seen that. House could be, was staying at the White House days and nights and he was the best and he, everything was for House. And suddenly uh, in the middle of the peace negotiation in February, 1919, well, House friendship is transformed in hatred. He couldn't stand talking to him. He couldn't. He never official, but he, he was telling his butler, "Don't take, don't open this letter." He was it, from love in some way. Uh, it became hatred. That was the first feature. And then he needed. He got. He, he became completely obsessed again in Princeton with an enemy, an older colleague, who had a project of graduate school. There was no, grad, no big graduate school at Princeton. The guy had a project and Wilson was totally agreeing with the project. He has edited the, 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 the documents that was submitted to the board of Princeton. And then he denied, he, he had read it, he lied to the board. He was almost fired, but he was obsessed that this guy, he could not stand, he could not stand having this guy uh, sharing with him the the success of the graduate school to the point that he was almost fired by Princeton Ball at the moment he jumped in uh, New Jersey politics and of course nobody remembered that moment that he remembered it very well and and Princeton University remembered it so it's exactly what happened with Cabot Lodge in the Senate Cabot Lodge, he admired Cabot Lodge. Cabot Lodge, who was a majority leader in the Senate. Cabot Lodge published as an academic his first academic article. Cabot Lodge is quoted three times in this major book, Congressional Government. And suddenly, disrespect is transformed in obsessional hatred. So what was, and to the point that he said, I will never, that is very important, I will never sign the same document than Cabot Lodge. So the issue is here. If you have a reservation from the Senate, it is a document written and signed by the majority leader before the president endorsement in the process. So he had to, he would be co-authoring in some way the treaty with Cabot Lodge if they asked. He could not imagine having his name and so that is because, so there is, uh, uh, and, I, and then I'm coming to the end of the, of, of the explanation. So Wilson uh, had to, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, had a, a, a kind of identification to highest figure, to be able to face the very imposing figure of his father. He has a, he has an attachment to his father the way uh, you, with the, the double meaning of attachment. Attachment can mean love and, and strong feelings. And it can also be, be, means jail and being like feeling like you are, you, you cannot get out. Uh, it's, it's imposed to you. And it's exactly what happened to, 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 um, to, to Wilson in the relation with his father. So in the first part of his presidency, when he was dealing with domestic affairs, his identification to uh, Gladstone, the prime minister of Great Britain, permitted him, first of all, 
to, to, to succeed in his political ambition, Gladstone, what, he read an article when he was student at Princeton. He read an article on Gladstone uh, oratory talents being prime minister. And at, after reading this article, he wrote to his father, I discover I, I have a mind. And it is bullied in a conversation with Freud that says that found it was a Lacanian discovery in some way. He says, Wilson's father wanted him to be a minister. He could be a minister and obey his father, but he would be a prime minister. And when he arrived in Princeton, in the speech as president, he says, I feel like a prime minister. And as you know, he wrote the book, Congressional Government. And as you know, the first thing he does when he's president, he's the first president since Jefferson who delivered the State of the Union address in person, like a prime minister, he comes to Congress. So that works very well. When he becomes involved in foreign affairs and his father has died, the competition with his father become and is become uh, of a higher standard because he become the Christ and even sometimes God the Father. In fact, there are many testimony in the, for example, Lloyd John in his memoir reports that one day they were meeting and he says, the Christ did well in the principle, but the implementation didn't work well. So I'm here to correct him, to, to, to adapt and correct, etc. So Freud wrote about that. And when he speaks, I am here to correct, then he's God the Father. He's not only the Christ. <laughs> he's correcting the Son. And so you cannot correct the Ten Commandments. You cannot, I mean, he brought the Ten Commandments to the United States. He almost said that. He made a speech, God command us, etc. He thought the text he has come back with was like a new Christ, uh, a new father's, God's father, uh, God's uh, mission. And he could not accept that the, this guy, Cabot Lodge, makes a reservation on, on a, a document of that. So to summarize, he had, uh, he had towards his father an uh, uh, official absolute love to the point that his doctor said, I've never seen a man so so worshipping his father, but in fact, he had an aggressivity he never could express, and he, which was expressed toward rep representative of his father, like Cabot Lodge, or like this older professor in Princeton. And the second dimension, which is more, uh, it is something I can, I can read you, uh, uh, what I found in the archive, which is quite impressive, while working with Freud in the fall of 1930, but it was taking notes of their conversation. And on November 1st, 1930, he recorded the following dialogue with Freud. Freud, you and I know that Wilson was a passive homosexual, but we won't dare say it. I said, certainly we'll say it, but but subtly. Freud answered, that's the equivalent of not saying it at all. And in fact, they wrote it 12 times in the book. Is of course, his relation with his dear friends completely, which with a, had, if he has done a psychoanalysis, he would have discovered that in a dimension, it was unconscious, but he had this bisexual dimension that is never, he was never conscious of, but played a major role in the 
terrible affective break uh, he had, and that had an impact in his life as president of Princeton and then as president of the United States. Well, this is obviously going to change the historiography of <laughs> Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> Uh, and it's a fascinating story. I mean, when it comes to being a minister or not, of course, I was raised a Catholic, but, uh, you know, the idea of being a, a professor is, I'm not the first one to observe, is a is a kind of secularized version of being a minister. So, you know, but I didn't need to be prime minister. Just being, just being a regular, you know, secular minister seemed like enough to me. But anyway... I, I want to ask you, because we're running out of time, I wanted to ask you, I mean, it seems to me in a way that the book is really a kind of a plea for a return, if you like, to, uh, you know, a kind of history that says it's not all about large social forces, but rather it's about the outcome of individual people's de decisions and actions. And more particularly, on the very last page of the book, you ask the following questions. By what means shall democracies prevent those who cannot be trusted with power from obtaining it and using it to the detriment of their constituents, the wider world order, and democracy itself? Now, it's hard for an American not to hear uh, you know, worries about Donald Trump in, in that passage. So I wonder if you could say, you know, how is how is the book a contribution to rethinking, you know, what history should be about, and how is it more specifically, perhaps about this other more specific? That's a very very important question. In fact, it depends what do you study. If you study the transformation of agri agricultural production between the 18th and 20th century, of course, individual history doesn't matter much. But when you discuss what happened. In, in a closed door meeting between three people. And that, for example, Wilson, who didn't want to have any American secretary accompanying him in the negotiation with Lloyd George and Clemenceau, as both of them had secretary and diplomat assisting them, confused when it was about Italy, uh, Trieste and Trantin. And he gave Trantin to Italy. And in fact, before discovering that was most important for the Italian was Trieste. And then that was another feature of Wilson. He, once he has said something, he could not, he was totally attached to his own words. He had a stenographer who worked 12 years with him. Every day was taking note of everything he was saying. And then he was correcting. So it was, you couldn't, you could, and as you, as, as people who follow Italian history know that Trieste, probably the, not giving Trieste to the Italian, probably perhaps contributed to Mussolini rise to power and Danunzio, etc. So you are, I mean, it has a big impact. And to have Wilson not willing to sit like, like so in fact, many people who have worked with Wilson felt he had a psychological problem. First of all, first of all, Churchill. Churchill in an op-ed he wrote in the New York Times in 1929 says, Wilson wanted the German and, and the uh, the French and the British to make love with the German after four years of war, of war and could not sit at the same table than Republican senators. So he, you have here personal impact, personality impact on very important decision. It depends what you say. When Keynes wrote 
the economic consequence of peace. People don't much remember the, the economic dimension of the book. He wrote the psychological portrait of Wilson and Clemenceau and much less of Lloyd George because it's a biased book. And in fact, he insisted a lot in his book. And this book is still playing a major role in the common understanding of, of, of the Treaty of Versailles. And I challenge it in my book, the, the Keynes narrative. So Keynes himself being an, an economist and a, and a major economist focused on the personalities of the leaders to explain the peace treaty. So I am exactly following his path in this book, but I'm challenging his, uh, his first of all, his dadas and, and, and the explanation he gives. And in fact, where you are totally right, it is that without knowing, of course, Trump in advance, Bullitt thought that the presidential regime was dangerous. He was for, like Wilson was at the beginning, he was for a move to a parliamentary regime. In a parliamentary regime, when you feel a leader become nuts, you can fire him from Congress. I mean, the, in one day. In the, in the American system or the French system, if the president is nuts, it's extremely complicated to get rid. And so the issue is, how do we manage that? After all, you, John, me, and all the people who will listen to us, when they are recruited in their jobs, you have a lot of screening, you have a lot of assessment, you have uh, evaluation, you have testimonies, you have people who, your, your previous colleagues, your, you are, we are assessed before being rec recruited. Presidents are not much assessed except by their speeches, by their words, by the talent they have to seduce crowds. Uh, uh, and there is here something that uh, should be thought about. Shouldn't we create some way of screening with the approval, of course, of, of, of the people? But I mean, after the Trump experience and some other experience around the world, maybe it's time to consider way of, you know, assessing the quality of our leaders uh, uh, in another way than just saying, oh, he has been elected. Uh, yes, but perhaps before being elected, we should have a some forum. I mean, there is something to be thought about. And uh, uh, of course, we could, we could also say, let's move to a parliamentary system. Look what happened in the UK. They, they, they fired their prime minister when they don't like him anymore. Uh, we cannot do that in, in the US or in France. We, we have to keep them for four years. And, uh, and me in my country is five years. And so that's a problem and which is not resolved. And it's not uh, something that we should uh, neglect. Well, we do have this uh, amendment, right? Yes. The Fifth Amendment that could be invoked and people discussed it in the Trump administration. I don't remember a lot of the details about it, but there was a concern of this kind, probably tracing back at least to Wilson uh, and being raised again as an issue with Trump. Um, but people are obviously... But the amendment, I think it's a cabinet who has to, to, to... And the cabinet is chosen by the president. So it's exactly the, your point. Maybe you should change the amendment and say it could be raised by 25% of Congress or something like that. You should have a method of having, you know, it's very difficult for a member of the cabinet chosen by the president himself or herself to say, I mean, so 
Yes, you are absolutely right, but I think it's perhaps it will be time to assess the means we have to after we discover the nature. So there was a, you know, there, there was a, a journalist who, after reading the, the first uh, section of the book in Washington, said exactly that. It is it is in the conclusion of my book. Uh, uh, he says. Uh, uh, state papers, however elegant, are not final measure of a president's influence on the life of others. They are also his secret, laid on his soul long before he thought he could call it his own, and which he, like other men, must seek to endure without acknowledging them to exist. They matter. And it is the things we don't know about the personality of our leaders, and that, that can be revealed only when they are in power. And what do we do then? So you are, you are pointing something very interesting, there are some mechanisms, but they are not fitting perfectly with the need. I think it should not be the cabinet. It should be, you know, uh, it, it will not be invoked easily because if the opposition invokes it permanently, they will lose uh, credit in the, in the public opinion. And when it's obvious that the person in the White House cannot manage the country, the fact that you say 20% of Congress can ask for, uh, after signing the declaration, they want an assessment. I mean, there is something to be thought about. Right. Well, let's hope we don't have to find out <laughs> to our displeasure that uh, we don't have a good way of uh, moving beyond a sitting president who's not uh, a compass mentis, as they might say at Yale Law School. All right. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate you thanks. doing this. Thanks very much, John. I want to thank Patrick Vey for tanking the, taking the time to discuss with us his recent book, The Madman in the White House, Sigmund Freud, Ambassador Bullitt, and the Lost Psychobiography of Woodrow Wilson. Look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.